All right, if you will, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. To this point in 1 Peter, we've observed uh, pretty clearly that uh, salvation is both sovereignly and completely uh, the gracious work of God in Jesus. So it's, it's God's work through His Son, Jesus, coming to take our sin upon Himself, giving His life, satisfying the righteous wrath of God to save His people. And, and, and because of that, those then that trust in Jesus and His work have been born again to a living hope by Thee and through Thee, um, living and abiding Word of God. So, God saves us by His grace for His glory. So God saves us through the work of Jesus, completely through the work of Jesus. And when He does that, He gives us a new hope. He gives us a hope. And He does so by giving us the living and abiding Word of God, Jesus Christ. But He also gives us the Word in Scripture. And and He changes our lives. He radically transforms who we are. And so the question then becomes, what comes next? What happens then? So God has saved us. He has brought us from having no mercy, and he's shown us mercy through Jesus. We had no hope. We had no people. And Christ gives us hope and calls us his people. He completely and wholeheartedly and utterly saves us. Why? One of the things we've said many, many times, is that salvation is not the end goal for Christians. It is simply part of a much greater and glorious story. And when one surrenders his or her life to Jesus Christ, not only is our sin forgiven, not only are we covered with the righteousness of Jesus, but he also gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us. We don't earn the Holy Spirit. We don't get the Holy Spirit as in some additional gifting. It is part of God saving us. And the Holy Spirit will live in us to help lead us and guide us. And today, as we work through the latter part of 1 Peter chapter 2 and into the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3, what we will see is evidence of what it looks like to live life in the Spirit. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Everything listed here is not the only things we are to do or to to walk by in, in terms of reflecting Jesus by being led by the Spirit. This is just part of what Peter lists based on what was going on in these particular people. And what I want us to remember as we're working through these verses today is this. That the people of God are given the Spirit of God to live lives that glorify God. In other words, we are to live life in the Spirit. So I want to pray for us, and then we will jump right in. Father, today in your word, we will deal with some um, difficult topics. um, Some topics that might be new or that we might not personally agree with. But God, would you remind us more than anything that this is your word, that you are righteous, that you are holy, and that you are working all things together for good. And God, in hearing your word, would our hearts be transformed by 
the renewing of our mind through the gospel of Christ. And as our hearts are transformed, would our lives then be transformed too? So that we would live life in the Spirit as reflections of Jesus, our Savior. So God, would you speak your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we begin today, the very first realization of evidence of life in the Spirit that we come to is this. A godly example. Verse 11. Beloved. And we can land at the word beloved because of what Peter has already revealed to us in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And later, after we have seen that God has saved us and we realize that God has saved us and it is His great mercy that has saved us, He then calls us to be holy. He says, but you shall be holy for I am holy. And in our holiness, we are to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So God has saved us. He has set us apart as holy. And and part of being holy is to put away all malice, all evil from us. So then, understanding that, we come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, Jesus is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. And because he is the cornerstone, those who have been brought into his family then, verse 5 of chapter 2, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it all kind of culminates in verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That, that despite who we are, that despite where we come from, that despite what is within us, God has called us to be his people and he has set us apart to do his work which is to proclaim His greatness, His majesty, His glories to all. And He reminds us in verse 10 that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Remember, we looked at the book of Hosea, and Hosea is the prophecy that God gave to Hosea to marry um, Gomer, the, the prostitute. And they were to name their children, no mercy and not my people. But then by the end of that, God had extended his grace to them. And he says, now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God extends his grace towards his people through the death and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And those who are hearing that good news, he then in verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Why are we sojourners and exiles? Because we were once not a people, but now we are God's people. And because we are now God's people, we are not belonging in this world. The people of God have been set apart by God through the working of Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone, and we have been brought into God's family. And because of that, we who trust in Jesus for saving are Christians, and we are no longer at home in this world, a world that is plagued by sin, a world that is marred by sin and its effects. And so therefore, we are sojourners and exiles. We are on this journey working our way to what John Bunyan calls the celestial city. And it's because of this, it's because we are sojourners and exiles, because we have been set apart by God, that we, the people of God, must diligently guard our hearts and abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. You know, the reality is, is that God saves his people. And when we come and we trust him, he takes our sin and he casts it afar, as far as the east is from the west. We are covered with the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. God no longer sees us as broken, marred sinners, but he sees us the same way he sees his son. But that doesn't allow us to escape the temptation of sin every moment of every day because that is naturally who we are. God no longer sees us as sinners, but we still fight the daily temptation and the battles of sin. And so how do we face that? How do we face the daily battle of sin and temptation that we all face? We guard our hearts through the study of God's word and the continued gathering with God's people. Think about this. If you've ever spent a period of time where you're faithfully reading the Word of God. Let's say four or five days a week at least, you're, you're in the Word of God. You're studying the Word and you're being filled with the Word of God and then for some reason you stop. And you have a period where you're not in the Word. Have you ever noticed that when that occurs, how different things become in our lives? Our attitudes change. The way we perform at work changes. We start associating with things that we never would have associated before. We start justifying sin that we would have never justified before. We become okay with things that are not okay. And, and the flip side, the gathering of God's people. Have you ever realized that when, when how easy it is to come out of the routine of gathering together with God's people? How easy it is when we miss to not come back, to not consistently gather. It's a lot easier to 
come up with the reasons on why it's hard to get up and get going and to gather with God's people. Peter says, beloved, I urge you, I'm begging you, as sojourners and exiles, as the people of God, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh. Why? They wage war against your soul. See, even as the people of God, even though we are covered by the grace of Jesus, we still face the daily battle of walking step in step with Him. That's one of the big reasons that so many miss the doctrine of perseverance. You know, if you were raised in and around a Baptist church, you probably heard, once saved, always saved. Uh, my pastor used to always say, if saved, always saved. And, and the reason is, is because if we go through the motions, we assume that we are the people of God and that that's it. That salvation is the end goal and that the rest of our lives can be spent doing whatever we so please. The doctrine of perseverance is about persevering to the very end, running the race with endurance that is set before us. Resting in the grace of Christ and walking, being led by the Spirit through the rest of our lives, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ and Christ alone. Keeping our thoughts, our motives, our attentions, <coughs> excuse me, fixed on Jesus. You know, we fix our eyes on Jesus and we understand that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. We begin to live lives that are godly examples. And those things that all of a sudden crept in when we spent time away from God's people and away from God's word, those things become foreign to us. And we read 1 Peter 1.16, Not as a burden, you shall be holy, for I am holy, but as a blessing that we would get to strive for the holiness of God. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to be godly examples of, following the example of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to reflect the glories of Jesus Christ. And when we live as a reflection of Jesus, we begin to show the world His grace and His goodness. And what Peter does in verse 11 and 12, after he gives us the 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 foundation of our faith, that Jesus Christ has saved us and he has called us and has set us apart. He's now transitioning to set us apart for what? Right? How do we then live? And so verse 11 and 12 is really kind of the foundation that the rest of today will be built upon. It launches us into what it means to, to live life in the Spirit, at least in part. And so we go from a godly example to godly submission. And it's interesting that he would begin his writing on 
the evidence of life led by the Spirit of God to this idea of submission to authority. And he does so in a few different ways. The first way that he encourages us to be submissive to authority is that of like institutional authority. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but to the, also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The biblical command for the people of God is to honor those in authority. That begins with understanding that God has sovereignly placed in power those who are in power. That those who are leading are there because of God's definite plan. That doesn't mean that everyone in power is godly. That just means that God has put them into power. We see evidence of this all throughout Scripture and history. And for the sake of time, we're not going to hit all of those (laughs) examples. And here's the deal. We might not agree with their beliefs. We might not agree with their platforms, with their policies, with their thoughts, with their actions. But according to these verses here, to reflect the love and the character of Jesus Christ, we honor them. I think we all could probably agree that if we looked at social media long enough, we see plenty of Christians who are not obeying the word of God here. This doesn't mean we enthrone them as the next great king, but we are to honor as a reflection of the character of Christ. And I want you to remember this before you start balking at this idea. I had a conversation with somebody, it's been several months ago now. They were going on and on and on and on and on about a particular person as if to crown him the next great king of the world. And I reminded them of what we read in Romans 13, which is more background for this. Because not only were they enthroning a particular person, but they were vilifying another. 
And I remind him, listen, before we get into a lot of that, we need to remember that who is in power is there because God has allowed that to occur. I don't agree with that. Okay, well, let's go to Romans 13 and begin to understand that God places sovereignly people into power. I just don't know about that. Okay, well... What about King Nebuchadnezzar? He was wicked. He was in power. God allowed him to be there so that Daniel could speak into the lives of his people. What about Pilate? Pilate was not a godly man and he oversaw the death of the Savior. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. And when we begin to balk at these ideas and these realities, we need to understand we're not balking at ideas and realities. We're balking at God and his word and his rule. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you assume. I don't care what you feel. I care about the word of God and I hope that our hearts are gravitating there as well. It's not what we feel. It's what does the word of God tell us? What does the word of God point us to? What does the word of God reveal for us? It reveals that God in His definite plan and foreknowledge before anything was created set aside a people for himself so that his son could come and bear the wrath of himself because of their sin so that he could save us to continue to work of redemption throughout history to make much of himself because he is the only holy, righteous, and glorious God. And so we need to remember that it is God who saves us by his grace and he sets us apart so that we can live as a reflection of him. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. It's quite the difference than the way we see a lot of Christians living today. So, Christians then submit to God in this way, not as slaves, as we just read in verse 16, but as freed men, freed by the blood of Christ. And the grace of Jesus frees us to live for him in all places at all times. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
it doesn't say honor everyone whom we agree. It doesn't say love the brotherhood whom is like us. It doesn't say fear God when it's convenient or when it fits my personal beliefs or agendas. It doesn't say honor the emperor whom I choose to honor. It's definite statements. And here's the reality for us. Human nature completely tells us otherwise. Human nature leads us to not want to submit to anyone, especially to those whom we disagree. But if we truly believe that God is sovereign, then we must exercise trust in Him, even when it's completely difficult. There have been many times throughout history that people were in rule during a period where God's people suffered greatly under that leadership. You remember a couple years ago we were going through the Gospel of Mark and we talked about how Nero would take the Christians and he would do one of three things typically. He would bring them into the arena and have them attacked by wild dogs just for sport, just for entertainment. Um, that he would take Christians and he would dip them in oil, strap them to lampposts and light them on fire so that they could light the way of the city instead of lights. And yet, God used that to proclaim through the gospel of Mark that our hope is to be in Jesus and Jesus alone, that we should stand firm in him. See, a lot of this boils down to, well, what do we believe and think about God? Do I believe God to be God? Do I believe God to be sovereign or do I believe God to just be a figment of my imagination? When we start playing with the nature and the character of God, we start giving way to a lot of false ideas and practices. We neglect that His Word is His Word, that it is infallible and is inerrant, that it is inspired, that it is sufficient. There will be plenty of difficult circumstances in our lives because of those who are in authority to us, but that does not excuse us from not submitting to what God would have us do. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If our lives and if our lives' goals and our lives' aims are not God Himself, we are missing the point. And when stuff like this happens, we crumble, we shake our fists at God as if He has failed us. 
God, why would you do this? This is not what I had in mind. God must be the goal. And if God is the goal, then our confidence will rest entirely on Him and His Son, Jesus. It will not be in people. It will not be in parties. It will not be in platforms. It will not be in comfort. It will not be in any other thing. It must be in Jesus. And when we understand that, and when we understand that Jesus, as God, is our ultimate authority, then we understand that He is not simply calling us to something that He is unaware of. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest whom can sympathize with us. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ, listen, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Why? So that you might follow in his steps. What steps? Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet, when he was reviled, he did not revile. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, God Almighty, who judges justly. He endured the cross, he despised the shame, yet he opened not his mouth. Because there was a greater purpose at stake. The glory of God through the redemption of his people. Because of that, Christ endured what would be unimaginable. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ knew the greater purpose. Purpose wasn't the ease. It wasn't the comfort. It wasn't, you know, the shortcut. The purpose was to appease the wrath of God meant for his people. And the only way that was to be accomplished was by taking all of the sin of all of his people for all of eternity and put them on himself, go to the cross, be mocked by men, be beat by men, but then bear the eternal wrath of God meant for sin. And in that moment, he exchanges the sin of his people for the righteousness of himself. And God no longer sees his people as ungodly, but rather covered by grace. It says, for you were straying like sheep, verse 25, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus comes to fulfill God's plans by redeeming his people, by suffering in a way that only he could. To be wounded for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities. 
and his straying sheep to be called home. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with submission to authority in terms of the institutions. He goes from institution, public, to home, more private. See, the Spirit of God is not only to be reflected in the public life, it is to be reflected in the private life, in all of life. And the ultimate call to submission in in terms of institutional authority is rooted in submission to Jesus Christ. It's all rooted in the sovereignty of God. In other words, we submit because we trust that He is omniscient, that He knows all things, that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God is God, and He has graciously set us apart to be His people. He has graciously saved us, and He has graciously called us. And the home life is no different from the public institutional life. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, part of this is that he is referring to wives who are married to husbands who have not believed in Jesus. And what he's wanting them to understand is that if you honor your husband, if you, if you respect your husband, you can show a true picture of Jesus that prayerfully could lead them to repentance. Now, this does come with a caveat. If you're in a situation where you are being abused in any way, it changes the game a little bit. You can be respectful and honorable, but you don't have to stay there in that situation. And so really, we can look at this in two ways. To wives who are married, to husbands who have not trusted in Jesus, but they still love you and they still care for your family, Honor and show respect in such a way that they may see Christ in you and hopefully Christ will save. If you're in a situation that you are being taken advantage of, you need to seek godly counsel. Now, in healthy relationships, husbands and wives, this doesn't mean that you'll be without disagreements. This doesn't mean that you won't object to something. But he says in verse 2, your pure, respectful conduct. Guard your conduct. 
just as if I am being persecuted for my belief in the Bible, I should guard my conduct. All of this is to be done in a reflection of Jesus. But in addition to the character aspect of the wives here in verses 1 and 2, Peter goes another step further, which is really interesting. He goes to that of appearance, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In other words, he's saying, be modest. Don't make much of yourselves on the outer external part of your body. Your beauty doesn't come from there. Your beauty doesn't come from what you can nip and tuck here and how you can paint or adjust this or that. Or what you can put on to keep in with the next and greatest fashion. That's not where your beauty comes from. In, in other words, I don't want you to focus on that. Rather than investing on the outward appearance, you should be investing on the inward beauty of your heart. Godly women should care much about modesty, not giving too much attention to outer beauty, but focusing and working on the heart. In other words, let God's word transform your heart. That's where the beauty is. And Peter gives us an example of a godly woman who graciously submitted to her husband Entrusted as leading. So, so verses 1 and 2, we see this picture of wives who are married to men who do not believe in Jesus, who are unbelievers. And 3 and 4 add addition to 1 and 2 in the way that they carry, but then it spills over into verses 5 and 6, which really points to the home of those of um, godly men who love the Lord and, and are leading their wives. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Abraham's an, an interesting choice here. And I think a lot of this is part of what Peter is accomplishing. Peter, of all people, was extremely guilty of focusing only on those who were naturally born into the family of Israel. Right? Paul even accused him one time. Remember, Peter was like, like you know, he was feeding, he was eating with the Gentiles, but then the Jews walked in and he was like, he tried to change. So Peter is unpacking the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation is not meant for just one specific ethnic people, but it's meant for those who trust in Jesus, and that covers every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. So he uses Abraham as an example here. So he's digging further into all of this unpacking that Jesus is the one true Savior. And you might say, well, how in the world does that fit? 
was Abraham an Israelite? Abraham was not. He was from Ur of the land of the Chaldeans. He was a pagan. And God calls Abraham. And he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay. So you see a little bit of God's saving work there. He goes from pagan to being willing to follow God because he simply heard the voice of God. And Sarah, his wife, with him. And God tells Abraham, now go. I'm going to give you more than you could ever imagine. Go. Where? I'll tell you when you get there. Abraham trusts the voice of the Lord. He follows him. And as verse 6 says, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. She loved her husband enough. And she trusted her husband enough that he was being led by God. And she went. They left out all that they knew. And it says, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What would be fearful and frightening in this situation? The unknown. But because God is sovereign, and because it's God who has worked in and through us for his good pleasure... Because it's God through Jesus who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the living and abiding word of God. Because it's God who has called us to be set apart as holy. Because it's God who has under G- on top of Jesus the living stone be- is building us up as a spiritual house, as living stones, a holy priesthood, a spiritual sacrifice through Jesus has called us in as his chosen people, a royal priest and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellence of him who called us from darkness into a marvelous light. He is, once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Beloved, then, trust me. God cares far more for us than we would ever realize. We can spit Romans 8, over and over and over again, that it is God who works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, and we will never scratch the surface of how much God loves and cares for us. Now, in case any of you husbands or men are in here and be like, yeah, your turn. Likewise, verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, you must live in a manner worthy of following. 
we don't use the Bible to run it around like it's a rod demanding people to do what we want. If you're doing that, you need to repent because Christ is not in you. We are called to reflect Jesus by exercising godly authority, both gently and compassionately. And I can tell you when you read verse 7 in our day, you talking about the anger and the rage that will come forth because we live in an age of feminism and an age where we don't believe biblical complementarianism. But remember that this is God's word which outlines God's way. And if anything, this doesn't demean women at all. In fact, it builds women up because it brings into true view the biblical role of complementarian relationships. Which is that God has created us as we are. And He has given us particular roles to play in the building of His kingdom. Wives have their roles. Husbands have theirs. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves his church. Enough to give himself for it, her. And here's what happens. When we understand that God is our ultimate authority, and we begin to submit to the authority of God, and we understand that the Bible is God's word to God's people, then not only are we submitting to God, we're then submitting to God in His word. And we begin to submit to every human institution. We honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands lovingly and graciously lead their wives as they have submitted first to God. All of this happens and leads to godly unity. Finally, verse 8. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. God's people are to be unified in Christ. He is the center of all things. In Him we live and move and have our being. In Him all things hold together. And as the people of God, those who trust in Jesus as the center and the Savior of all things, we are called then to reflect Him and His character. At home and in public. 
And as he closes this section, he quotes Psalm 34. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He quotes Psalm 34 as an encouragement. An encouragement for believers to seek purity and holiness in all of life and to trust the Father as He sovereignly leads us. We must be unified under the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel that has reconciled us to God and it is the gospel that reconciles us to one another. We must exist together by trusting God and submitting to Him and His leading and giving Him glory in every ounce of our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, may we rejoice in the Word as it tells us of Your goodness, of Your greatness, of Your majesty. Let us rest in the sovereign hand that you are ruling with and reigning with. Let our character be a reflection of you. Let us submit to those in authority. Let wives graciously submit to their husbands as their husbands are graciously submitting to you. And may we all be unified in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.